Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com. And welcome to Overnight America. It's a four-hour journey tonight, at least the live portion. You may be listening to this after midnight, which you may be listening to the replay, which is fine. We post all the shows online. Just do a search for Overnight America. We're going to be joined by director Jim Finn, a former St. Louisan. He has a documentary out about Ulysses S. Grant. That's next hour. I'm looking forward to that. I love talking history. So much great history with Grant's farm and everything else here and his time in St. Louis. It'll be fun to see, um, a little, maybe learn a little bit more about Grant. And Rich Rubino joins us on Mondays. He'll come in in about 10 minutes or so. Author of American Politics on the Rocks. A lot to get to. Uh, he wants to talk about Nancy Pelosi, one-term presidents, um, presidents who had Congress controlled by another political party. And the interesting thing I read online, I wanted to ask him about this. Some people are pointing out that a uh, Republican by the name of Charles Curtis, Native American, elected under Hubert, uh, uh, yeah, Herbert Hoover, excuse me, back in 1928, was long considered the first person of color elected into that high office. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I'll talk to him about that. So those things are all coming up with Richard Bino. And, of course, a lot of other things, too. We'll talk COVID. We'll talk maybe the pandemic here in St. Louis and what's being done. Perhaps drastic measures is what they say is necessary. Uh, what's going on with the working class? Andrew Yang was on CNN, said that the Democrats have lost touch with the working class. Well, no kidding. And lots else to get to on the show. If you ever wanted to get on, at least for the first hour, best thing you could probably do is text the show at 314-436-7900. I really didn't know exactly how to start the show today. I thought, eh, we could talk more politics, but we'll save that for Rich. So maybe this is a little bit better way to start the show. Did you know the National Toy Hall of Fame has inducted three new toys? I love talking toys. In fact, there's a documentary on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us. They sing at the start. And as the kids running down the toy aisle of Toys R Us, it's like a little cartoon. And, the, you know, the girl grabs the doll and the boy grabs the G.I. Joe or whatever. The Toys That Made Us. And then they go through some of the iconic toys that you enjoyed as a child. And it gives the back story and the history of it. It's an excellent documentary series. I think you'd really like it. So the National Toy Hall of Fame has named three new toys into the Hall of Fame. And we're not talking, I mean, it's sometimes you look at this and you think, uh, I guess, it's not that exciting. Like, sidewalk chalk is one of the toys added to the Toy Hall of Fame. Sidewalk chalk. Isn't that exciting? 
I don't know how many times I thought to myself, man, all I want for Christmas is sidewalk chalk. So I, I can see why it's popular. The other one is Baby Nancy is a toy from the 90s. I don't remember Baby Nancy. And the third toy that was inducted into the Hall of Fame was Jenga. People really do play Jenga? I guess they do still. I think Jenga is one of those games that it's kind of fun, but it's more fun to watch other people fail at it. You know, if anything, there's people online that just are really good at Jenga. And what they do is they basically could play these things in a really weird way. I don't know how to explain it. They do things I didn't even think were humanly possible. And then when it falls down, that's all you're waiting for. It's kind of like watching NASCAR, right? Some people watch it just for the crashes. Like, oh, I can't wait for it about to happen. And then some people really like it for the sport that it is. I get it, but, you know, that's what they say about it. Or, you know, they only watch uh, football for the gruesome tackles, or they only watch whatever, you know, baseball for the home runs, or they watch hockey for the fights. But Jenga, I watch for the stack to get leveled and falling down, just like anyone else. And if you play Jenga, is there... Is there anyone that is actually good at it, or is it 100% luck? Because isn't it mostly luck? Uh, I, I don't know if there's any professional Jenga players listening right now. I'm sure there's not. See, this is what happens when, after an election and there's still contention, if you want to try to talk about something else, this is what we talk about. Oh, I think maybe the best thing to do is bring in Rich Rubino after the break. We'll talk to him. We'll get as much politics as we can out. I'm really looking forward to having a conversation about Ulysses S. Grant in the 9 o'clock hour. And then I'm going to try my best to not talk all politics tonight, but we have to talk a lot of politics. And we've been getting a lot of phone calls still on the presidential election. I'm sure we'll get some more of those later. You'll be welcome to call in. That'll be fine. Sit back, relax for a little bit. I'm your host, Ryan Recker. This is Overnight America, KMOX. Listening to KMOX has never been easier. Siri. Play KMOX. And on Mondays, we welcome our friend Rich Rubino, author of American Politics on the Rocks, to talk about what's going on and maybe give us some context into the things that have happened in the past. Rich, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Ryan? Doing all right. For you, I know that you follow politics all the time. Is there ever a point where you even get exhausted? Uh, yeah, yes. I think actually when it gets very legalistic, I think sometimes it kind of goes away from the specific politics realm and starts talking about kind of what the legal maneuvers are. And that's the part where it gets kind of pedestrian. And sometimes it can be kind of this just Byzantine structure and it can be somewhat hard to follow. That's when. Legalistic. Yes. In the sense that there's all of these challenges still going on, or at least, uh, you know, the threat of challenges. But, yes. Uh, you know, what's moving forward? I The way I put it last night, it's kind of like that movie where you want to know how it ends, but you just want to fast forward to it because you're getting tired <laughs> of like going through the journey, and it's exhausting. Indeed. Yeah, there's been some movies I've tried to watch, and then you're going through it, and you're like, man, I don't know why so many people like this. Um, I thought I would like it, but ugh, I'll just fast forward to the end to see what happens. That's what I yes, want to absolutely. do. Yes, absolutely, and that's, um, that's the, the power of modern technology. I guess you actually have the power to do it, but I guess you know the book, too. Just go to the first page and go to the last page and you know skip the middle. there's a lot uh, still going on in American politics so it's funny because anyone that may be listening to this on the podcast even a couple of days later 
There could be changes. Anything could happen. It's just the, the way things are going this year. So we should probably point out that everything that is uh, going down, we have uh, Joe Biden's transition team starting to make some announcements of people and things that they would be doing. One of the interesting things, and we're starting to look at the familiar faces in the Democratic Party right now, is Nancy Pelosi. Yes. A lot of people are wondering, is she effective? And then there's even interviews of some leaders saying there may be enough votes to get a new leader in. So I'm curious, is Nancy Pelosi going to be a problem for the Democrats, or do you think she's going to be a solution? I think she's a problem electorally. There's no way, first of all, that she's going to lose. I think she's got too many promises, potentially. The last thing you want to do is get on her bad side if you're looking to be on a committee that potentially could help your district. Um, she certainly, if you vote for somebody who ran, were to run against her, were to wage some sort of a quixotic campaign, that's definitely not going to benefit you politically. That being said, there are certainly going to be some Democrats, the blue dog Democrats, the moderate to conservative Democrats, the so-called new Democrats. Um, there's the two House caucuses where it's probably beneficial to not vote for Pelosi. And they're probably usually there are a few people who always kind of get that pass. Like there used to be a congressman from Mississippi, Gene Taylor, who would always vote against her. Um, she he represented a district that would go like 65, 70 percent for the Republicans. So Pelosi kind of accepted that. Um, Charles Stenholm from Texas, for example, would vote against her. But she really is an incubus. Um, she's a liability to Democrats in moderate and conservative districts. Because as soon as um, you hear the word San Francisco and you heard the word Nancy Pelosi, immediately, almost every race, and if you, you know, I know people aren't going to do this, but if you go watch the C-SPAN archives and go to just about any congressional race, whether it was um, Congressman McAdam in South Carolina, Congressman Spanberg, Congresswoman Scanberger in Virginia, Colin Peterson in Minnesota, all these moderates, the main issue that the Republican opponent has to as allegating them, say, you voted, you know, 91 percent, you voted 85 percent with Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi. So as a result, even well, even a member for a leadership team, here's an example in Illinois, Sherry Busto. So she's the chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. That's the basically the fundraising arm of the Democratic Party. It's fourth in the leadership of the Democratic Party. Normally, people in that position have a safe congressional district. So they don't have to spend a lot of time, um, in, you know, worrying about their own reelection. But she, she, I think she, she's the only member of the Illinois delegation, this Democrat who represents a rural district in Illinois. And she barely won re-election, barely um, won re-election by like two or three points, in part because her Republican opponent was able to tether her to Nancy Pelosi. It's a real problem for Democrats, and um, it's a real problem, certainly, Abigail uh, Spanberger, the congressman from Virginia, who just won a re-election by about two points, basically told Democratic caucus members that the biggest problem they have the idea of being linked to socialism, the idea of the whole being linked to defund the police and how many times you voted with Nancy Pelosi. But that being said, as a speaker, Nancy Pelosi is effective in terms of getting legislation through the Democratic House over to the Dem to the uh, Senate. So it's really kind of uh, um, it's a Gordian knot in many respects for the Democratic Party. Uh, what kind of knot would you say that is? A Gordian knot. Gordian knot. Now, I missed that one in Boy Scouts. You'll have to explain that one to me. <laughs> oh, don't go back. I have so many bad memories of them, but <laughs> trying to do those knots and trying to make um, trying to make uh, toolboxes. Oh, yeah, whatever, and then your merit badges and, yeah, all, all kinds of things. So Nancy Pelosi, um, some look at as a liability in some ways, but it's almost uh, necessary, I think, 
in some ways. What about Mitch McConnell? So when we came into the election, we're looking at the potential of a lot of people were saying blue wave because they thought, oh, we're going to take so many seats in the House and we're going to take over the Senate and Joe Biden's going to be president and everything's just going to go the way of the Democrats. Well, not exactly. Uh, Republicans held pretty well in the Senate. It looks like they'll be able yeah. to maintain control. And the House picked up some impressive grounds. So when you look at the leadership on the other side of things, Mitch McConnell, a lot of people question his effectiveness, but it looks like he's been pretty effective. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Mitch McConnell is kind of a very similar problem for the Republicans that Nancy Pelosi. They're interesting foils, but Susan Collins, for example, in Maine, who was running for re-election, one of the major, one of the major issues since um, Sarah Gideon, her opponent, the Speaker of the House in Maine, made was that essentially, you know, Nancy Pelosi, or sorry, that uh, Susan Collins votes with Mitch McConnell. Susan Collins is essentially going to be, um, is going to be, you know, um, an ally of Mitch McConnell when she gets elected. She's going to be a rubber stamp. Uh, Susan Collins actually did get reelected, and actually, I mean, it's fascinating the House that the Democrats didn't actually pick up seats this cycle. But in, and actually, in the House, by the way, not a single Republican incumbent lost who was running for reelection lost his or her seat. The first time that's happened since 1994. In 2006, every single Democrat that was running for reelection won their seat that year. So it's fascinating that that happened. Now, in the Senate, the Democrat here's the thing: the Democrats actually had some pretty um, prolific, some pretty good recruits. For example, in Montana, where Steve Daines was running for re-election, the Democratic Party, at the nudging of Chuck Schumer, was able to get the only person who potentially could defeat him um, in terms of Steve Bullock, the incumbent governor, who has a job approval of about 60%, to run. He recruited him, and he barely lost that seat. Uh, the only seats that they actually, the Democrats picked up for an incumbent Republican was Cory Gardner's seat in Colorado, which I think the handwriting was on the wall there. Colorado was simply turning blue, and, and Cory Gardner could not, um, could not withstand that. And in, in Arizona, although uh, Martha McSally was – I mean, she was appointed essentially when John Kyle, who was John McCain's successor, resigned the seat. But so she wasn't actually elected herself, and she, of course, ended up losing to Mark Kelly – but the Democrats did have some pretty impressive recruits in some of those seats. But they were Mike Espy, another one in uh, in Mississippi, um, a very impressive recruit and the former agriculture secretary. But none of them were able to get a, quite across the uh, finish line. And I think a lot of folks in the political community thought that Susan Collins was dormant. She was dead as a doornail, but she was able to prevail in this election. But, you know, Mitch McConnell and other things, he's very effective Probably the most effective, admit you can make this argument, majority leader in terms of keeping his caucus together, probably since LBJ in the 50s. But he certainly is a hindrance for Republicans running for reelection because he's not popular um, around the country. He's not even that particularly popular in Kentucky, but he was able to, you know, he barely was able to. He always barely wins reelection, but he always does win reelection there. So him, they both are hindrances for their own party electorally. But in terms of getting legislation through, they're actually pretty effective. You know, as you start to look back at this election, are there any surprises to you, things that have really shifted that you weren't expecting to shift? Uh, I don't know. Well, in terms of actual surprises, I think that certainly Miami-Dade County, um, a region where Barack Obama had done, had done relatively well, Hillary Clinton had done relatively well, the fa how effective Donald Trump was at minimizing his losses in there. You know, he went down there. They Specifically, they really galvanized the Cuban community, the Venezuelan community, um, and said that essentially Joe Biden would be a um, conduit, would be a uh, stalking horse for socialism. Socialism is a four-letter word in that, in, that part of the, in that part of the country because you have immigrants from country from socialist countries. So that's one thing that was I thought was very interesting. The other thing was, I don't know if it really necessarily surprises me, but just – 
you know, it goes back to what Zuffbar mentioned about Pelosi, how hard it is to be a Democrat in a swing district right now. Um, you're, a swing, you're a swing district, and you're immediately, you're immediately tethered to the National Party, and it's very hard. You know, the question I'm, I've asked people before, and I've never really gotten an answer, when, somebody, when a Republican in a debate says this person, the perfect example, Congressman McAdam, for example, from Charleston, South Carolina, just elected, um, he was supposed to win re-election, and his opponent, just, uh, the only issue she really had, the flagship issue was he voted 91% of the time with Nancy Pelosi. Now, obviously, some of those are ceremonial pieces of legislation. Some of those are things that pass unanimously. But what is a Democrat to do to respond to that? They Usually what they do is they go immediately say, I'm independent-minded, and they go on to talk about something else. But I've never heard a Democrat directly respond to that, and that's really a message going for 2020, 2022 in the congressional elections. Um, that they really need to uh, they really need to hone it, to hone in on, and in terms of uh, in terms of President Donald Trump, you know he was effective in places like Florida. He was effective certainly in places like Ohio, but I think that um, the strategy of the Biden campaign, if you look at the last week of the campaign, they sent Joe Biden to I- to Iowa, which I thought was really kind of a perplexing situation. Iowa usually was a swing state. I mean, Clinton had won it, Obama had won it, but Trump had won it overwhelmingly last time. Um, in part because I think I think in my mind the Biden campaign thought that they had the message they had this campaign in a walk, and they were trying to maintain the Senate seat in Iowa, and they were trying to maintain the two that basically there were four House seats that were somewhat competitive there. But you make that appearance in Iowa, that's the day you're spending in Iowa when you could potentially be in Georgia, you could be in North Carolina, and also Senator Harris actually going to the state of Texas. Um, Texas was kind of a reach. No Democrats won the state since Jimmy Carter in '76. There was a Senate race there. There were some congressional congressional races there. But anytime you're spending in Texas, you're not spending in Pennsylvania. So I think if you do kind of the um, postmortem, the money macking quarterbacking, you wonder what were they thinking sending the candidates there in the last week of the campaign. Yeah, and outside of the actual presidential candidates, they looked at some of the different races in the House and Senate and how much money was spent yep. towards the very end there that ended up coming short. So that's got to that's gotta hurt, too. But I wanted to look at some of those issues that you think are changing because you talk about states that are changing colors. You want to talk about Colorado, perhaps yep. going more blue. What are some of those different issues that you think are driving states to change colors? I think it's not so much issues. I think a lot of it is demography, and I think demography is destiny in many respects. So a state like Arizona, um, Arizona, between 1952 and 2016, went for the Democratic every single year with the exception of Bill Clinton in 1996. Um, the last time around, Hillary Clinton went to Arizona the week, but the last week of the campaign, in part because they saw this new demography in Arizona and they saw the state changing. And as a result, this time around, it was actually beneficial that they did spend time in Arizona. And, of course, they picked up a Senate seat. Last time around, they picked up some congressional seats. Congressman Hollerhand, for example, was elected there. Um, They now have a United States senator. It's just completely shifting because I think part of it is Republicans have a problem with Latino vote in Arizona, which is a different vote than certainly the Latino vote in places like um, Miami-Dade County, for example. You Remember, when you're saying Latino, it's not necessarily a monolith. There's Nicaraguans, there's Cubans, there's Mexicans, and it's certainly more of a Mexican, um, more of a Mexican constituency in a place like Arizona, Colorado. I think there's certainly right. Well, there's always you know Colorado is an interesting state because you have extremely liberal places like Aspen, and you have inner cities and places like Denver that always go overwhelmingly Democratic, and then you have more conservative areas going out to, for example, Grand Junction, Colorado, and certainly the Leadville, and certainly some of the more rural areas. 
but there's certainly just a lot of people moving in the inner city Denver, right around Aspen, a lot of college students. So Colorado is, of course, going uh, going Democrat. Virginia, another state, interesting state. 1976, it was Virginia and Oklahoma were the only state that did not support Jimmy Carter's reelection. He was a Southerner that year. The Democratic Party basically even founded as a Southern Party. It was kind of their ancestral homeland, if you will. That year, Virginia was the most conservative Southern state. Now Virginia, in part because of the influx of right around Northern Virginia, specifically government workers, um, people who are more or less working working out of Washington D.C., a lot more liberal, and there's less people certainly in the more urban, the more uh, rural areas, as well as Richmond. By the way, there's certainly some inner city areas of Richmond as well. So as a result, Virginia was not competitive. Now you go on the other side of that, Minnesota. Minnesota used to be a rockwood Democratic state, the state of Eugene McCarthy, the state of Walter Mondale, the state of Hubert Humphrey. From 19, 1972, when Richard Nixon's landslide, the last time a Republican won that state, this time around it was razor thin to the point that um, the both that both major candidates they spent a lot of time in, crisscrossing the state, barnstorming the state of Minnesota. I think Minnesota, the next few elections, is probably on its precipice of becoming a Republican state. And you can say, you know, Nevada is another interesting state because Nevada. So, you know, you think you think of Las Vegas, and you think that's very liberal area, Reno, Carson City. But there's a lot of areas right in between that. A lot of certainly they call it the cow counties, for example. And they and Donald Trump was really able to maximize turnout there. So Nevada is certainly going to be a swing state in the next couple of elections as well. I got some more questions for you, if you don't mind holding on after the break. Indeed. Rich Rubino, you're going to hear things such as demography as destiny and other moments like that that I think is memorable. I had to Google search that. I thought that's such a nice phrase, demography is destiny. It could be like a, a title of a working book. And if you want to text a question in, you can at 314-436-7900. I wanted to talk to him about a few other things, including what you think could happen, Joe Biden being president and him not controlling the Senate. So what happens in a moment like that? Past presidents who had Congress, Congress controlled by another party. What about presidents that had a one term and then ended up running for office again in the future. So there's some examples that we can look at. If Rich Rubino coming up next on Overnight America KMOX. News Radio 1120 KMOX, the voice of the Cardinals. Overnight America, here we are. Live on a Monday night. And if you wanted to listen to this at any time, just go to the Overnight America podcast wherever you get your podcast at. He's the author of American Politics on the Rocks, politit-geek.com. Rich Rubino, thanks again for joining us tonight. Oh, you're welcome. I wanted to ask you, moving forward, let's say Joe Biden is the president. Things are all pointing that way. Yes. Joe Biden uh, will be the president. It would have to be some sort of extreme long shot. Something happens in the courts or whatever. And like I said... By the time someone's listening to this, two days from now, things could be different. Who knows? But let's. I let's, don't think um, that Howie Hawkins, the Green Party nominee, is going to win, though, this time. I'll go out on a limb. <laughs> Are you saying Kanye? <laughs> Kanye's out? <laughs> Are you saying there's a chance? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's say that uh, Joe Biden, is come January, is the president, and he has a Senate controlled by Republicans, and there is a House that is still controlled by Democrats, but there's a lot more Republicans in it. So it's closer so there's not as much control. So things could be a little closer. So I wanted to ask you about presidents that were controlled by different Congresses and how that worked out. Yeah, well, it's interesting. So I think some of the more exa- examples that I would find, um, I think the find kind of riveting in many respects, I guess one would be Harry Truman. Uh, Harry Truman in the 46th congressional elections uh, lost both the House and the Senate. 
1948, he ended up using that to his advantage. So what he did is at the 1948 Democratic National Convention, he essentially announced he was going to call the United States Congress into a special session on turnip day in Missouri, actually. <laughs> and he made that announcement, and he said that we want to see if you'll – he wanted to see if you'll pass certain pieces of legislation, a labor bill, for example, increase the minimum wage. And he wanted to make the case that the Republicans were, quote-unquote, do-nothing Congress. So he did that, and the Republicans did not pass the legislation. So as a result, it benefited Truman politically, and he was reelected in 1948 by running against the do-nothing Congress. And both the House and the Senate went back to Democratic control. Absolutely amazing the way he was able to do that. Um, I actually think Richard Nixon certainly had divided had a divided Congress when he came in in 1968, 1968 election, the first time that a president had both houses of the House and the Senate, both chambers of Congress, in control of the other party since Zachary Taylor, who was a Whig back in 1848. And Nixon was actually able, in part because he was more of a foreign policy president, his focus was always on foreign policy, so as a result, many domestic programs, be it the creation of the EPA, the creation of the OSHA program, for example, he basically said, well, I'll accept a lot of it. A lot of the Great Society programs from Lyndon Johnson, he kept in place, and he signed legislation. Um, he actually had his own health care pr- program, which was actually very similar to what Barack Obama proposed in terms of the Affordable Care Act. And Ted Kennedy, the Democrat, opposed it because he favored more of a single-payer system. He later said that he regretted it. Um, and then Bill Clinton um, certainly in 1995 with Newt Gingrich, it was an interesting because Bill Clinton actually was able to work with Newt Gingrich on, for example, welfare reform, um, on trying to work toward balancing the budget. And, you know, Newt Gingrich, by the way, and then first Bob Dole was majority leader, then Bob Dole resigned when he was running for president, then Trent Lott of Mississippi succeeded him. And in that fall of 1996, they got the Kennedy Kassebaum piece of legislation about health care portability passed for the United States Congress unanimously, 98 to 0 in the United States Senate, and then welfare reform, the reforms of the Clean Water Act. So as a result, what happened is that it benefited both Bill Clinton and it benefited the Republicans in the Congress because the Republicans in Congress could go back to their constituents and say, this is what we did. Bill Clinton could go back to the American people and say, look, I worked with the, I work with the Republican Congress. So who, is the, who did not benefit? The Democrats running for the House and the Senate. Um, did not benefit because they didn't really have an issue to run against Republicans on by saying they're obstructionists. And Bob Dole, the Republican nominee, because Bill Clinton had signed legislation that Bob Dole had favored at the beginning of the campaign. So there was this interesting dynamic where they actually ran this advertisement with Bill Clinton. He first he'd say, I want to balance the budget in 10 years. No, I want to balance the budget in five years. I want to balance the budget in seven years. I mean, obviously, their argument was Bill Clinton is indecisive. He won't tell you when they want to balance the budget. But it essentially was counterintuitive. Because what it actually said is Bill Clinton wants to balance the budget, so that message got to the American people. So it actually can benefit a, a, a candidate in many respects as long, if they're willing to work, either work with the other side, in Clinton's case, or Nixon's case, or if they're trying to be confrontational and use it against them like Truman did. I remember that game show in the 80s or 90s, Name That Tune? Yes. Yeah, and then they would stand up. I can name that tune in ten notes, and I could do it in seven notes. I can do it in six. Now, wouldn't that be great if politicians would stand up and talk about the things they would do, and then they had to name how long it would take for them to do it? <laughs> that would be great. I can fix the budget in ten years. No, I can fix the budget in seven years. No, I can do it. In... Now, that yeah, would be the way to do it. That's called the campaign promise. <laughs> Yep, and how do those always work out? Um, they use oh, 100% when, a, when a, it's, it's a rule of thumb. If a politician ever proposes anything, 100% of the time 
they will go through with it. It's, a lot of people don't realize that. A little known fact. Of politics. I, I, this is what I understand. Joining us here is a Rich Rubino, author of American <laughs> Politics on the Rocks. Maybe that's a good study at some point. Were there more campaign promises kept or broken, if you had to guess? You know, I think that usually it's right in the middle. What they do is they'll keep the promise, but they'll do it. it well, first of all, if you're running for Congress, it's hard to make a, prom- to make a promise. You say, I promise I'll get this legislation through. Most 95% of pieces of legislation that congressman proposes go nowhere. They essentially get they go to the hopper, they go into committee, the committee never brings them out, and the ones that do pass lots of times are minor pieces of legislation to establish a post office. So essentially, a congressman, what they can promise, they can say, I'm going to vote a certain way, and usually they do vote that way. But um, certainly, at the, uh, certainly at the presidential level, you can make the promise, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But, of course, you need the Congress to go with, that, to go with you on that. And if the Congress does not go with you, then you can go back to the people and say, well, I had the intention of keeping the campaign promise. It was Congress that, uh, that, that nulled me on that. So it's, 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 very, it's very hard to actually come in there. Except for minor things, you might say, I'm going to sign this executive order. And, yeah, you're going to do that. Um, Joe Biden, for example, said he's going to get the United States back in the World Health Organization. Well, that just takes a signature. The the Mexico City policy involving abortion rights, for example, that just takes a signature. But in terms of really major pieces of legislation, you know, you're not necessarily you're not a um, you don't have plenipotentiary powers to just sign a piece of legislation and it becomes law. Mm. So let's um, look at some instances where presidents who may have been one term turn around and want to get back into the game. Have there been instances of that? There have. Yeah, there that's have. interesting. Yeah, Martin Van Buren, actually. So Martin Van Buren served from 1837 to, 18, to, from 1837 to 1841. Then he lost re-election. He tried again for the Democratic presidential nomination in 1844. At the time, there was no such thing as a primary, so it basically decided a convention. The Democratic Party did not choose him. They chose uh, Lewis Cass, the senator, instead. Then in 1848, he actually broke away from the Democratic Party, in part because the Democratic Party generally supported slavery, and Martin Van Buren was basically an abolitionist. So in 1848, he ran on the ticket of the Free Soil Party. The Free Soil Party is um, the Free Soil Party was essentially an anti-slavery party. Um, you know, he didn't necessarily do too well, but he essentially he broke from the party. Later, he came back to the Democratic Party, and the Free Soil Party was kind of one of the precursors to the Republican Party. In other words, Martin Van Buren, I'm sorry, it was Millard Fillmore. Millard Fillmore was kind of an accidental president. He was Zachary Taylor's running mate in 1848. Then Zachary Taylor dies in 1850. Millard Fillmore becomes president. Millard Fillmore dies. And Millard Fillmore rather leaves office in 1853 after being embarrassed, losing for re-election. Then in 1856... The so-called Know Nothing Party, which was kind of an anti-immigrant party, um, they would say the reason they're called a Know Nothing Party is people would ask them if they had a secret meeting to discuss what they were for, discuss what they, they were for establishing a party, and they'd say, "I know nothing." Um, so in 1856, Millard Fillmore actually garnered their nomination. He didn't really do much campaigning, and his message was a little bit different. He was more talking about unity than he was talking about what their actual message of the campaign was. Um, in terms of being against against uh, mostly Irish immigration, so he didn't get, he didn't do a lot of campaigning. He ended up winning about twenty one percent of the vote. The only candidate he won was Maryland. Now the one time it did work out though was actually Grover Cleveland, and Grover Cleveland interesting predicament similar to Donald Trump. So he runs in eighteen eighty four and he wins, serves out his serves one term. Then in eighteen eighty eight he runs for election and he loses in the he loses in the uh, electoral college, but he wins the national popular vote. 
in part because of the state of New York, his home state where he had been governor. He lost the state of New York. So he goes home, becomes a lawyer, goes back to goes back to to, to uh, goes back to New Jersey, goes back to New York. Then, and by the way, the last day of his, of his administration, his wife Frances Folsom Cleveland told one of the aides, "She said, keep the place nice. We'll be back in four years." So he had a, in the first couple of years, Grover Cleveland's out of sight politically. Then Benjamin Harrison, his Repu- Republican successor and nemesis, signs the Free Silver Act, um, which tried to try to establish more currency, supports free silver supports the McKinley Tariff, which is essentially what the Republican Party at the time supported, which was just basically a higher tariff. Grover Cleveland was opposed to all those ideas. So he had his impetus. impetus. He's going to come back, and he's going to say, you know, I don't like what Harrison did, so I'm going to run for president again. He runs in 1892. His main opponent, interestingly, was David Hill. David Hill was his protege. When Cleveland was governor of New York, David Hill was the vice president, was his lieutenant governor. When Cleveland became president, Hill became vice. Hill became um, governor of New York, but then they had a falling out basically over issues like the gold standard. So they ran against each other. Grover Cleveland won that time around, and then he was elected. Again, this time he beat Benjamin Harrison again in 1892 and became president. The only other one-term president that tried again, Herbert Hoover, and after losing in 1932, only winning six, only winning six states that year out of 48 at the time. Came back in 1936, delivered a speech at the Republican National Convention about um, about the dangers of socialism and the New Deal. He tried for the nomination, but it went instead to uh, Alf Landon, the uh, the uh, the Alf Landon, the governor of Kansas. So it has been people who have tried to do that. The most recent, Jimmy Carter, George W. Bush did not. Although Gerald Ford, there was some talk of him potentially running in '79 and '80, and he certainly considered it, but he did not do it at the end. One last thing I saw on social media that I wanted to ask you about, and I saw someone post this, because with uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris talking about her background, um, multiracial, uh, mom and dad came from different parts of the world, and because that of that, they were looking, oh, this will be great. Uh, it's diversity into the White House. She'll be the first female vice president for sure, and talking about of her background, be the first two. But then I see this posted, Republican Charles Curtis was a Native American elected as oh, yeah. first vice president in 1928, long considered the first person of color elected to that office. And I thought, i got to ask Rich about that. Yeah, that it's true? true. He was yeah. one a Kai Indian. He was actually, he was a, he was a Senate Majority Leader in Kansas. He was from Kansas, very similar to Bob Dole. He actually was appeared in tobacco advertisements, believe it or not. But that's true. He was um, very much raised in part of the Indian culture. And in 1928, he ran himself uh, for president, and he ran a campaign against Herbert Hoover and basically made the case that Hoover could not be nominated, could not be elected. So he runs against him in 1928, loses in the convention in the, in the spear of unity, nominates him. He becomes vice president. And then in 1932, he basically said that there was – he was the one who said essentially there was light at the end of the tunnel and we were coming out of the Great Depression, which ended up hurting, hurting Herbert Hoover – but you're right, and he was also the first uh, Native American to be elected to the United States Senate before Ben and Night Horse Campbell from Colorado. Yeah, how about that? A little bit of lost history there, things you don't hear about all that often. Oh, he, and he was really, he was a huge name in the Republican Party when they were in essentially their heyday, when the Republicans had the presidency, had both houses of Congress, and he was the, um, he was the lead Republican in, from the state of Kansas, certainly at the time. He's um, kind of been lost to history, but he was really almost a household word um, at the, during the 20s and in the 30s. Yeah, you see, people are going to rush to write books and uh, documentaries about him next. <laughs> That'll be the thing. They're going yeah, yes. to try to remember as fast as possible. Um, 
So of all the different things you write about, I know you're continuing to write, which is always awesome. The best way to keep up with you, where can people find you? Yep, a couple ways. You can go to www.polita-geek.com or go to Twitter, go to Rich Rubino Paul, P-O-L, or just go to Facebook and type in Rich and then R-U-B-I-N-O, and you can see my interviews there as well. Awesome. Polita-geek.com and on social media, Rich Rubino. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on Overnight America. Thank you. It's a very uh, boring time politically, I know. (laughs) I need a break. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, He joins us on the Quiver River Electric Guest Line on Overnight America KMOX. This is Overnight America, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michaelsflooringoutlet.com on KMOX. I posted something stupid on Twitter earlier, and that was... which, what was the better decade, the 80s or 90s? <laughs> I don't know why. I thought, oh, I just have fonder memories of the 90s than I do the 80s, and I wondered if most people felt that way. It's actually pretty close. I think, what, 48% to 52%, the 80s are leading right now, and at Ryan Recker on Twitter. I was surprised. I thought there would be someone that would take that away and just run with it. So if you wanted to, that would be good. Let me bring this up real quick, and I wanted to talk about this last night. Didn't get a chance to, but you probably saw last week there was the threat of— it wasn't even really a threat of a lawsuit. It was a lawyer letter sent to the McCloskeys by the person that took the photograph of the McCloskeys as they were on their property holding weapons as the uh, mob went through the neighborhood and were threatening them in right at their house, you know, going through to try to go to the mayor's house or whatnot. So they, the McCloskeys, end up using this photo to they use it as like their Christmas card. <laughs> and the photographer ended up sending a lawyer letter saying, hey, this is how much I charge. You're going to have to pay for that photograph. Well, the McCloskeys are going to sue that UPI photographer for capturing that image of them confronting protesters. So they're not putting up with it. Yeah, they're done. They're like, you know what? I'm just sick of this. You kind of... Uh, we're just tired of people harassing us, so whatever. We're not going to take this and just put it in the filing cabinet and forget about it. We're done. I I think they're setting the message of just, guys, stop messing with us. So the Post-Dispatch reports in the lawsuit that the photographer, Bill Greenblatt, and the McCloskeys say, well, to take that photo, you were trespassing. (laughs) You were definitely not allowed to be there. So the act of taking it and where you were, you just proved you were trespassing. So we're going to file a suit against you for that in the St. Louis Circuit Court. I don't know if that's going to go anywhere. If anything, it's more symbolic. I don't think they'll be paying it. Maybe, who knows, the photographer will sue. But good luck with that. i got to imagine the photographer does not want a legal battle with the McCloskeys. And if anything, I, I it's kind of funny in the way. But at the same time, it's not. because Just because they... We're on their own property, and you may not like what they did, but they absolutely felt threatened, and they weren't going to be sitting there waiting for something bad to happen. They definitely went out. And, you know, not everyone looks at it that way, but is there any need to continue to harass them at this point? And is there any need for the city of St. Louis and the circuit attorney's office to continue to harass them through legal battles? Really? No. There, there is no need for this. So they're just getting tired of it. I can see that. So I thought that was... Pretty funny and good for them to do that. And I just want to point out, we got other issues that definitely need higher priority right now. That's including the homicide rate. Do you want to guess what the number is right now? Go ahead. Take a take a wild guess. The last update from the St. Louis Police Department 
in their homicide rundown from today, earlier today. The number was 222 homicides. Wow, 222 homicides. I was going back through some of the data. The last time we were up in the 220s, you have to go back to 1994. They were at 248 homicides for the year. Is it out of the question? Well, we still got, uh, what, four, five, six, seven weeks left? You know, I, I hope we don't get to that point, but it could. In 93, there were 267 homicides. 92, there were 231 homicides. And then 91, 260 homicides. Pretty terrible. All things considered, the population of St. Louis right now is a little over 300,000. Estimated population. Now, since the census is doing their thing, we'll probably get a better idea of what it was. If you wanted to go back into like, you know, 90, let's see. There was 267 homicides. We'll do 94. 1994, 248 homicides. The population in St. Louis about 1994 was 368,000. We had roughly 65,000 more people living in the city. Pretty big difference, and it makes a difference, too, because now you're talking about weighing it as in, hey, we have less people now, but the homicides are uh, continuing to rise, and we could even get up to that number? Makes it even worse. This has been a bad, bad year. I don't think it's something that corresponds with anything other than the absolute failures in the circuit attorney's office. We need to support our police. We need to definitely get some more resources out there. Uh, we need to definitely find ways to do this in the ways that we sh- that aren't working right now. Cycling, dangerous, criminals right back into the street, lack of prosecution, terrible rate when it comes to violent crimes and prosecuting those with violent crimes and uh, you know half of it is just showing up half the time if they could just show up that would be nice too but is that too much to ask Ugh. coming up in the next hour this is a good one we actually have an author for the full hour well excuse me a director Jim Finn is his name. He used to live here in St. Louis, but he did a documentary on Ulysses S. Grant. So much great history of St. Louis and Ulysses S. Grant. We're going to talk to him about that in his documentary coming up on Overnight America KMOX. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.